Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastak. Elizabeth D. Samet teaches English at West Point, where future Army officers learn how not to lose. There, as in any U.S. military setting, everything can be won and should be won unequivocally, whether it's a sports match, an exam, or a war. But what happens when, as Samet writes in our Winter 22 cover story, the ambiguities of life are confused with the clarity of sport? Especially the ambiguities of war, especially when the institutions sending young people to war are the very ones pretending they can't lose, in places like Iraq and Afghanistan, on timescales that can be measured in decades. Elizabeth D. Samet is the author of the recently published book, Looking for the Good War, American Amnesia and the Violent Pursuit of Happiness, among many other books. And for the record, the opinions expressed here are her own and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Military Academy, the Department of the Army, or the Department of Defense. She joins the podcast from New York to discuss the hazards of never owning loss. Thanks so much for chatting with me, Elizabeth. Thank you, Stephanie. It's a pleasure to be with you today. So your cover story for us is about the dangers of so many things, but specifically perpetual optimism in war. And right out of the gate, you talk about our hurried withdrawal from Afghanistan. Um, I'm wondering, was that the only inspiration for this story? Or did that sort of kick a long running stream of thought into motion? You're certainly right that the withdrawal from Afghanistan was the catalyst for the article. But as you also intuited, there were many other things beneath the surface. And I think that moment helped me to crystallize many of the swirling, contradictory emotions that have surrounded the last 20 years, essentially, but in particular, the last several years, when we seemed in many ways not quite at war, but certainly not at peace, um, and wondering how this would ever end. When it finally did, when we finally got that punctuation mark um, of the withdrawal, it seemed as if people had no emotion left with which to process it. And that's really what sparked the piece. Yeah, I mean, I wonder, too, in the wake of the war, if that perpetual optimism that you so eloquently write about has to do with the way we shift the goalposts almost of what we were supposed to accomplish. I mean, looking in particular at the past couple of years of war, I mean, how how do you see the perpetual optimism playing itself out? Well, the military has long had what's been described by observers as well as participants, a can-do attitude. And I don't think armies can function without a can-do attitude because of the nature of the obstacles that they face, the nature of the challenges with which they're presented, and the stakes of failure. And so it's a double-edged sword. That attitude is at once essential and helps people to do what might otherwise be impossible. But it also makes it almost impossible to admit that something can't be done, or to admit that things are not going well, or to say no. I can't do this, or we can't do this. And I think that's the particular place where the military found itself. And this inability, I think often it's been described as a kind of mendacity, a duplicity that, that 
people with this kind of optimism were lying to, to others and to themselves. But I think, as I suggest in the article, that it is more complicated than that, that it's really about being indoctrinated into a culture that believes it can do anything and must believe it can do anything. And then there's the tragedy of finding out there's something it cannot do. And the fact that the mission changed so frequently and that the war almost seemed to be because of the nature, the limited nature of deployments a year at a time, let's say, people felt they were fighting a new war every time they arrived. So the objectives would change, the personnel would change, the methods would change. And it, it just seemed to be this endless cycle. I can't help but draw a parallel to to human emotion here of, of like this institution, almost like a person shutting off sort of the taps of certain kinds of emotions, of sorrow, of loss. And I think, too, that like, I mean, historically, the, you know, the army has been a rather masculine institution and masculinity in America, not exclusively, has, I think, an an issue with tapping into those kinds of emotions. And I, you didn't really touch on this in the article, but I'm wondering if you see any parallels in that, too. I think stoicism, a masculine stoicism, is certainly regarded as a military virtue, despite the fact that the military has changed its composition mm -hmm. quite radically over the centuries. And that certainly has some kind of role in this optimism, in the sense that, of course, I can do this, and of course, I'm not going to say otherwise. But I'm not sure that in any circumstance, and I, I don't think this is gendered necessarily, really, that anyone in those circumstances in the midst of a fight has to compartmentalize certain emotions. And I think grief is one of those emotions. That there is this sort of amazing psychological facility that soldiers develop, that they, I think they believe they will grieve later. Mm. And they do, but it, it's a sort of amazing resilience, really, to be able to, to do that. I mean, I think it can cause crisis, certainly, but I think there is a sense, a strong sense of responsibility in the, on the part of my colleagues and my former students as officers for the people in their commands, that whatever it is that they're feeling, they also realize they have to show a kind of strength and a resiliency in the face of great grief, of great calamity. And I think that that, in some way, again, is, is a kind of necessary thing, but it has certainly been gendered in the past as a sort of masculine stoicism, and I do think that that's still very much a part of military culture, perhaps inevitably, um, certainly by virtue of its long history as a primarily masculine domain. Do you think that, you know, by shutting off the possibility of of losing the military is like shutting off the possibility for grappling with that, with the morality of the whole enterprise. I think that answer is probably very different depending on the individual's sphere of command. So mm -hmm. if you're talking about individual lieutenants and captains who lead small units, um, they deal very much with and are trained for this, certainly at West Point and in ROTC and OCS programs, with the rules of engagement and with the rules of war, the laws of war. And 
steeped in just war theory. And so they have a limited sphere within their command. If you're talking about senior officers at the strategic level, at the policy advice level, then I think probably the answer is very different. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think that the idea that one would not question certain things, I don't mean on the level of certain orders, not questioning lawful orders. That, I think, is ingrained in Army officers. Um, but the idea that you would not question the whole enterprise is something you have to grapple with, because I think that many of my colleagues and former students have had to explain things to their soldiers or discuss things or answer field questions from them. Um, I think contrary to what some people think, these are not automatons who are who are sent to do our violent work for us, but thinking citizens who also have doubts and fears when they're in the midst of a an actual firefight, those things have to be set aside. But there are, as anyone who goes to war will tell you, periods of downtime and boredom where you are alone with your thoughts and your doubts, and you do have to reckon with them. And I think that's the moment that can sometimes cause a real crisis, either at the time or as a kind of delayed mm. reaction once you come home. Yeah. I mean, I was very moved by all of the commentary from your friends who had been to war and come back and were meditating on this idea of optimism, of losing versus winning. And there's this one particular passage, and I'll, I'll quote here, where um, you talk about a friend who watched the opening sequences of Patton and Black, Black Hawk Down and We Were Soldiers together with the entire Corps while at West Point a couple decades ago. And he said watching those fed something in cadets who were struggling to imagine what their futures might look like. Of course, the point of making us watch films that dramatize these tactical and strategic losses was that they weren't actually losses. They sublimated loss into moral victory, romanticizing the Shakespearean band of brothers mythology. It's a point that eluded many of us for a long time. Some of us still haven't caught on. It's a very insidious and sentimental form of indoctrination. Yeah, I think he's particularly astute when he talks at the end of that about that this trauma, this sort of destruction of the mythology damaged him more than the death and violence he witnessed. And he witnessed a lot of it and the death of a, of a close friend. And I think that it focused so exclusively, these films, on this, he talks about the Band of Brothers, on this camaraderie, on this sense of cohesion, on this brotherhood, this fraternity, again, very male, very gendered. And when you focus on that, when you abstract that from the rest of the, from the context of a larger war, from causes, from other questions, it becomes very easy to focus on just that particular moment. And then you don't have to worry about those other issues. You just think of this very romantic endeavor and you're sort of this self-contained unit and all that really matters are the people beside you. And so I think it became for him, he had to reconcile the fact that he was a professional, a technically competent expert professional who very well knew the real grim business of war, but also realized the degree to which mythology and sentimentality had, had shaped his own expectations. So he had to figure all of that out while he was in the midst of, of combat. It's a lot. 
It's a lot to figure Absolutely. out. Absolutely. And I can't help but think of what he mentioned sentimentality. And I also just finished reading your new book, Looking for the Good War, which focuses on the way that World War II gets romanticized. Now, I wanted you to elaborate on the relationship between that sentimentality that your friend was speaking about and that you were writing about and this dangerous optimism that you wrote about in the article. I certainly think they're related in part because they rely on the emotions and the passions. And you have to surrender reason in both cases. You have to surrender reason to be a perpetual optimist. You have to surrender reason to submerge yourself in sentimentality um, and in a kind of romantic ideal. Those are both very seductive positions. Who wouldn't want to be an optimist in that way, right? Who wouldn't want to have this romantic view of life? And yet, it just doesn't correlate to to what we see, to everyday living. And I think it distorts things so much. Um, the force of both of them is so powerful, and that's in part what I was attempting to to write about and to illuminate. I, I well understand the appeal of these worldviews. Um, and, and given that they are so powerful, that's why I think they can be so dangerous uh, in the long run, even if they do initially sort of help us to understand or to become enthusiastic or to be, feel a part of a participant in given cultures. In the end, they limit us to a, a really powerful degree and I think make us incapable of making rational decisions sometimes. Do you think without the sentimentality that we've attached to World War II, without the romanticism, without seeing it as, quote unquote, the good war, we would have, you know, that perpetual optimism problem? That's a difficult question. I think perhaps perpetual optimism is is particularly strong in Americans, but I don't think it's unique to them. And so while the, the myth or the image of World War II, the legacy of World War II, as and it clearly was exceptional in many ways, the idea that regardless of our motives, that in the end the consequences were that we did secure a victory over fascism, over tyranny, that we did liberate um, millions of people, that model has created a lot of false expectations for the use of military force, and maybe it makes us more optimistic. We did this once, maybe we can do it again. But I, I don't know that it, they're completely uh, they're completely united. Mm -hmm. It seemed to me, as you you put it at the end, you know, that like we did it once, we can do it again, and then the next war we didn't. Um, there is an unwillingness to acknowledge the fact that we didn't win the Vietnam War, or that technically we're still in the Korean War. And I think you point out too that the parallels to World War II are are brought up even today with our, our present wars, even though it's been so long. Yeah, World War II offered us the most flattering image of ourselves. And it offered us, again, the word optimism, I think is crucial here. It, it offered us the most positive, the most optimistic version of what military force could do. But even in that reading, we overlook or diminish the unbelievable devastation and we we conflate this sense that violence secured certain goods, certain ends, but 
that doesn't change the nature of the violence. Does, that doesn't make the violence good in and of itself. And I think we have confused that in many different ways and, and then made an automatic assumption that American military might would be a force for good, sort of inevitably. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, it becomes even harder to sort of make that equivalence, for me at least, when I read about the Japanese internment camps or about the enormous death toll from the atomic bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki or the many and myriad ways in which American forces did not behave so greatly in Europe, which I think, as you point out, is is a much more easily romanticized theater of war than the Pacific. And one effect of the myth is that all of those complexities and ambiguities were acknowledged at the time, many of them were, by many people, and immediately after the war were thought a lot about it. It's only over time that those aspects of it, that those most troubling aspects of it, have been diminished and submerged in this kind of rosy glow um, of of sentimentality. I can't help now but ask you about the Civil War. You know, no no one who fought in the Civil War is alive today. So we don't have quite the same proximity to World War II. And I wonder how you feel our perspective on that war has changed, because you, you bring it up in your book, and you've written about the Civil War many times in your career and for us, too. I mean, do you think that the Civil War is kind of an object lesson in how distance changes the mythology? So the Civil War is a is a really vexing case. And I do think that we're beginning to change our attitudes about the Civil War. I don't I don't think that we've changed them fully. And I think that the tentacles of that myth are so deep that even though we reckon every day in the headlines with the various legacies of the lost cause mythology and of a kind of complete surrender on the part of the victors there to the losers about who would write the narrative of the Civil War. Um, I mean, it's Eric Foner, the great historian, who says, I think, that, um, you know, the North may have won the war, but the South won the war for its memory. And the degree to which we have ignored the causes of the war or remade the causes of the war, again, at the time, people were very clear about what North and South that the primary cause of the war was slavery. And Grant, in his memoirs at the end, says everybody will agree about this. Well, he was wrong. And suddenly people forgot or willfully you know, ignored that and made it again a very sort of fraternal, uh, brother-fighting-brother uh, kind of family affair and completely ignored the other aspects of it. That damage was a long time in the making, and maybe we're, I hope, that we're emerging from it. World War II, I think we still have a chance to think about it anew because it is closer to us. People who fought in it are still alive, although there are fewer and fewer every year. But it isn't yet lost, as you suggested, to history, right, or lost to the past. It isn't sealed away. And so maybe there is a chance to think about it in less sentimental terms and to realize the extent to which myths exert a hold on us. It's not just a personal hold. It's, a, it's a, the way a nation thinks about itself. And tragically, the way it 
thinks it can exercise force in the world. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you put it so eloquently. I think in a way the Civil War can show us maybe at a distance the dangers of what we're doing right now, because it's not like the South rewriting the causes was totally harmless. Tens of thousands of Black people died during the 20th century. Thousands were murdered by white people because, you know, that rewriting was allowed to go on. I think it's a very clear example of the danger of that kind of mythology, that it's not like an abstract fighting over like what this thing meant to you because hundreds of thousands of people died in Afghanistan and they weren't Americans. Right. The, the legacies of the myths are very different in kind, um, but they do share this sense that myths, which are necessary in many ways to the formation of identities, to the way countries and peoples think about themselves, but they always have that dangerous underbelly, which is often a violent expression. And that's what they share. I think, you know, your essay and also your your book, I think, are a clarion call to sort of the dangers of optimism, of sentimentality. You know, what happens if we just say whatever, who cares? World War II was great. And, you know, like we did some bad things, but it was great. Well, I think we've seen some of the consequences in the, the conflicts that followed World War II, that in believing that, um, and in believing that it was endlessly reproducible wherever we deployed this effect of liberating people, um, that is, to me, the, the clearest example of the dangers. It also, rhetorically, it gave people a language, the architects of subsequent wars, a language with which to describe the world. It's not the same world anymore. And so to label everyone in World War II terms, axes of evil, Islamofascism, these are some of the terms that emerged that have clear uh, roots in World War II, that they're not, it's not, it's, they're not parallels anymore. These analogies don't always work. And the dangers we face are different in kind. And I think our responses to them also have to be different. So it, it sort of it entraps us in the past, which I see as deeply ironic for, and painfully ironic for a country that's predicated on the idea of the future, right? On the idea of progress, on the idea of looking forward. We're now seemingly we have embraced a kind of backward glance. That's how I read the, the sort of obsession with with greatness, making America great again, right? All of these kinds of ideas of, of looking back to some time, and that has many different formulations. It can be, you know, to a, it can have economic, political, social, cultural dimensions. But this idea always of looking back um, seems to me a, a strange place for a country that's based on the future, um, that's based on reinvention to, to find itself in. We have links in the show notes to Elizabeth D. Samet's winter 2022 cover story, The Art of Losing, as well as what I kind of think of as the prequel, her new book, Looking for the Good War, American Amnesia and the Violent Pursuit of Happiness. Samet is no stranger to the scholar, and her past work for us is well worth a read, especially her cover stories on the meaning of Civil War monuments and the scourge of military sexual assault and the masculine code. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. <laughs>